1: You're listening to a podcast from The Word.
0: Waddy game. I've got a belter, Mark. It's sent in by a listener. And this is really good. Sent in by Phil Kinderman. This is really good. I I won't explain to you the premise. You'll get it as I go through them, okay? Okay, yeah. You've got to spot the odd one out of these. Chicago, 36. Tubular bells, 4. Batter out of hell, 3. Peter Gabriel, 4. Toto, 14. It sounds like a bizarre kind of Scottish League
2: Division II rock band. It does. It? it does. You actually had that Toto to- to 14. Yeah, yeah. That's right. So, you
0: had that kind so of. just once you have a number, that's what you naturally do. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I'll do it again. Chicago 36, Tubit of 4, Bad Out of Hell 3, Peter Gabriel 4, Toto 14. One of those doesn't exist. Which one? Sent in by <laughs> Phil Kinderman. Excellent idea.
2: It's a really good idea. Well, there were at least four albums called Peter Gabriel Uh, and Toto, Bat Out of Hell. There were three Bat Out of Hells. What was the second one again? Tubular Bells Four. Yeah, there were four Tubular Bells. Uh, I'm. I tend to say it's not Chicago 36 because that's so absurd and there were so many records just called Chicago <laughs> that I'm prepared to accept that there actually were thirty-six Chicago albums. I'm going back to I'm saying it's Toto 14. The could the world did not want 14 albums. <laughs> called Toto, by Toto. That's well, it, it got 14 albums no, called no, Toto. No. So Chicago 36
0: is real. Bad Out of Hell 3 is real. Peter Gabriel 4 is real. Toto 14 is real. Jupiter of 4 is not oh, real but, because there were only there
2: three. No, you're right. That's really good. Phil that Kinderman, good? that's very, very good work <laughs> indeed. <laughs> really Bless good. Bless him. Them. I just got sent one from uh, from a, a subscriber called Harry Lingard, which I thought I'd try out now. This is a departure from the normal thing, Dave. It's a different on. structure, okay? So the premise is black metal band or item of Ikea furniture. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good. It's really good, okay? And I've got ten of them. And you've got to get... I'll, 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 ten? I'll, it's going to be ten. And if you get more than half of them right, Right, you won. It's simply your question is, is it a black metal band or is it an item of Ikea furniture? I'm sure you're gonna to have to guess. Oh, okay, yeah. number one, Sargeist. <laughs> it's good, isn't it? Sargeist. So you're gonna say, is that is that some flat plaque assembly <laughs> shelving <coughs> or is it um, or is it a, a black metal band? Sargeist.
0: It's a black metal band.
2: You're absolutely right. Finnish black metal band formed in 1999. One to Hepworth. Clubbo. I always spelled it, that? K L U W B O. -o. (laughs) Clubbo. Oh, good grief. Uh, Flat pack furniture. Very good. Again, you're right. It's annoying. It's a coffee table. Gruntdal, G R U N T D A L, Gruntdal. Is that a black metal band or is that something from IKEA? Black metal band. It's not, it's a wall shelf. (laughs) (laughs) Ein ein Herger. Ein Herger. Three more from them. A black metal band. Yes. Oh no, you're soaring (laughs) here. A Viking metal band from Haugesund, Norway. (laughs) That's brilliant. Okay, Sko Baby. Spell? S-K-O-B-A-B-Y. Sco Baby. Black metal band. No, no, it's a three-seater <laughs> leather effect sofa. <laughs> I thought you might get that one because Baby doesn't sound kind of hard and aggressive enough to be a black metal band. But okay, no, that's good. So you're over halfway, I think. Drugged. D i u d k h, drugged. D
0: r u d r u d k,
2: black metal yeah. band. Yes, Ukrainian black metal band. Oh my god, you're doing well. <laughs> um, okay, where we got to? Craft. <laughs> Item craft. Flat pack furniture. No, that's a ringer too. It's a Swedish black metal band originally formed under the name Nocter in 1994. Three, four. You've got four right. You've got to get two of the next two right to win. OK, Acker Coke. Ak-a-ko-ka. So A-K-E-R-C-O-C-K-E. Acker Coke.
0: Oh, good grief. Uh, Flat pack furniture.
2: No, no, <laughs> they extreme metal band from London, formed in 1997. I oh, know, it's absurd, isn't it? And the last two are Bohol- Boholmen. Boholmen. Uh, black metal band. It's a stainless steel sink. And and Bastig. That's a great name. Bastig. Flat <laughs> furniture. <laughs> yeah, it's a nickel plated handle. You've got five out of five, five. out of ten. I'm gonna let you say you won, because that's fantastic. That's a superb performance. But it's very funny, wasn't it? Who who sent that in? That was sent by Harry Lingard. <laughs> very, that was really good work, actually. Very good. Work. Actually sent loads more than that. I just I just picked the best 10 it's Very, very funny. Uh, so what's been happening? Well, Bill Bailey won uh, Strictly Come Dancing yesterday. Are you, are you avid, on the Sunday? Are you an avid viewer of? Uh, no, I'm not an avid Britney viewer Britney? at all. I've never watched it before, but I just love Bill Bailey. I'm sorry, <laughs> I absolutely love. Him. I just got interested in just keeping tabs on whether or not you get booted out in the first episode. And believe it or not, and this is a, a moment of great national celebration and a testament of hope for all of us in these troubled times. That Bill Bailey actually won last night, <laughs> and which was just fantastic. I made a terribly emotional speech. Oh, it was, it was just brilliant television, and uh, it reminded me that we should plug. I think two great clips, which I might post at the end of this, actually, of Bill Bailey's two two of his great musical clips. One is: Have you ever seen the one where he does an, an impression of a, of a catastrophic technical failure at a U2 gig? <laughs> <laughs> he's just making the point that Edge, the Edge's guitar is entirely about sound effects. Yeah. And he can make, he can, with one guitar, make a sound exactly like you 2 But the moment the effects turn off, it's just him going, dinky <laughs> And it's just very really, very funny about comedy. <laughs> and the other thing, which I think is absolutely brilliant, which I discovered a while back, is um, he does this impression of Billy Bragg. He's busking somewhere, somewhere is being filmed. He does this impression of Billy Bragg, uh, uh, a song about a girl called Debbie, working in a politically oppressive chip shop in Raynham. And uh, this girl gives him a look. The interpreters, help, I'm a woman in chains. And he has to assert his masculinity. And it is just one of the funniest impressions of anyone. It's so like Billy Bragg. His mannerisms, his vocal inflections, the types of songs he writes is really funny. We should, uh, we should uh, right, post right. that too. So look out for it. So, yeah, know, said... The other big event, I think, is, which you've seen it too, I think, isn't it? Is that, is that I think it's a big event. It's the Bee Gees documentary yeah i saw it i i i watched
0: it yesterday now i have to say it it annoyed me in the way that loads of rock documentaries annoy me you think well obviously they're gonna have a member of Oasis in here you know the the talk he adds will be will appear it's it's got you've got it you've got to have that and nobody gets a complete sentence out in an interview at all everything's just cut in two you know and and i uh Sorry, I'm going to say something positive in a moment. And yeah. I also—I don't know if you feel this when you're watching rock documentaries nowadays, because there are so many of them that that um, that the old magazine editor in you keeps—you can't keep them below the surface. Because after about 20 minutes, you want to go. Stop. Hold on. Tell me that again. Let's yeah. just go into that little bit in a bit more detail. A bit deeper. That's really interesting. Because, but no, they don't do that. They just keep. Flying forward in search of their great arc of narrative,
2: you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, which is always just pronounced highs and lows, isn't it? It's just, they were really, really successful. They sold millions of records, and then it was catastrophic. They couldn't leave the home because yeah. they were being sort of insulted by members of the general public. Having said all that,
0: the Bee Gees is an extraordinary story. It's an extraordinary saga, and they, God, they made some brilliant records over a long, long period of time. Probably longer than anybody else, you know. They've had, they've had more than one golden era, had not they?
2: You know. Yeah, this uh, they had this documentary. Instead, is called "How uh, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart?" And it's by the the documentary maker Frank Marshall. I, I found it on Amazon Prime, but it's all over the place. But yeah, two. I mean, two major. Although my one beef is that they missed out a classic part of the of the Bee Gees story. I think I bet you know which one. I'm well, about. I, I don't. But if, unless I'm right, unless I'm wrong, the Bee Gees put out a record called, uh, what's it called, Specs and Sparks? Um, Specks and Specs. Sp- sorry, Specs and Specs in Australia. Yeah. They then had written to Brian Epstein saying, you know, and sent him yeah. a set or something like that, yeah. and, uh, and got a letter back saying, if you come to England, Robert Stigwood, who works for my organisation, will see you. They then, I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying, got on a boat... And they sailed, and in those days it took six weeks, sailed to England to see Robert Stingwood. And when they got to the Suez Canal, it was about halfway uh, through, they got a message that they were number one in Australia. So they were completely conflicted. They've now got a hugely successful career, the number one single in Australia, and we're going to to yeah. a completely uncertain future in, in England. I thought that was a really, really no, interesting That's not, that's not it's in, not it in there. Well. It's and not I'll in tell you, there at all. I'll tell you the other thing that I don't think was
0: in there at all, unless I'm, I completely missed it, is I don't think You Win Again is in there at all. No, it's not. Which was an enormous bloody UK number one hit, wasn't it? And That was like another comeback from whenever that was. In the I don't know how, how long ago that was. Uh, it's not in there at all. But they, they, you know, they do the story they want to do. No.
2: So no, one of the things that struck me straight away was that it's the Dave Hepworth theory that that you can measure uh, the value of pop music by its musical worth. And by the personality of the people making it. This is one of your old theories. So I think well, it's a really good one. The Beatles being an incredibly good example of someone who had maximum of both. both. <laughs> but it struck me that the Bee Gees had immense, immense musical worth. Here, you know, I've, got, I've got a CD here with 19 of their number one singles, you know. Yeah. Uh, immense musical worth. But in terms of personality, I looked at them and I know the Bee Gees very, very well. I, don't know, I thought, well, I know Robin. But which one's Barry again and which one's Morris? I just can't quite remember. I thought, Oh, I it can, like re- that? All I all can remember years, that. I can't quite remember who's who. I don't
0: think anybody, <laughs> I may be going out on a limb here. I mean, because I admire the Bee Gees hugely. And I've loved most of their records. And it's all about the records. It's not about them. It's <laughs> about, totally about the that. sound of the records. And yeah. um, I've never once looked at, you know, and I bought the first Bee Gees single in the UK UK New York mining that disaster 1971. The <laughs> there, really was, good there was no New York mining disaster in 1971. Um, and I bought the first album and, uh, and so I've followed them ever since. But I don't think you ever looked at them at any point and thought they look cool. I don't Never. think you ever thought that for a second. Not They're even Morris, it was fabulous looking. Yeah. No matter how much they tried or didn't try, you never looked at them and thought, "That's a club I'd like to join." I'd like yeah. to. Nobody ever. I think I'm right in saying this. Nobody ever the looked. The clothes to... were terrible. The Nobody ever of... looked at the Bee Gees and thought, I'd like to go for a pint with those guys. <laughs> <laughs> They'd like
2: fun. You thought oh. that's a brilliant idea. I'd Get out with Robin Kim for a <laughs> knockabout bit of banter, yeah. a bit of banter <laughs> and. Um... They were they were kind of lost in showbiz, weren't they, from an early age? Completely, but and it's in two stories, it's, it's two sections, isn't it? It's the huge success. Post Beatles, they sound a yeah. bit like the Beatles, yeah. the kind of psychedelic sound, you know. And it's so cliche. The Barry at one point says, Before I was 21, I had six Rolls Royce. Yes. Why would you want even one Rolls Royce? Really? Yes. Six Rolls Royce. What's the point of this? This is so cretinous and cliched, you know. But anyway, they have all that, and they're, they're, they're really successful, and then they fall from grace, and then they have to reinvent themselves. And that is really interesting, I think, isn't it? They go out to 461 Ocean Boulevard, because Eric Clapton, who's also signed to RSO, says, go and use the studio. Well, and I it, think
0: it's inter- really <laughs> interesting. Eric Clapton, this is classically the way these documentaries are put together, that they do an outline, and they go, now, where can we get some big rock names in here? OK, OK, no. Noel, Noel Gallagher there, yeah. Chris Martin there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Guy at the Jonas Brothers there, Eric Clapton, because he was on the same level, same you know, similar management, and so forth, and and they always say that that you know the the Bee Gees went to Miami because Eric Clapton told them to go to Miami because he'd been there and he made force Yeah, my notion little and so Eric Clapton is interviewed. Clearly, has no memory whatsoever of saying this. You know, at the end of the interview, he goes, "Well, if that's my place in history, that's fine." Kind yes, of quite. He's quite genial about it. Yeah, they go, "No, it fits. It, it fits." Just, say it was. <laughs> just agree <laughs> with it. Yeah, uh, uh, which he does. You know, and of course, you you get all the. Uh, I tell you the bit I liked was uh, Albie Galuten and uh, and Carl Richardson, the engineer, um redoing. And this is something they don't do often enough in these kind of films. Technically, how they did the drum loop on Saturday Night Fever was it Night well, Fever? it was Night Fever. So it's Night Fever was the song. That's right. Yeah. Because the story goes that uh, that the drummer, the drummer Dennis Bryan, had to go back to Wales because for the fu- there was a funeral, and so yeah, they his just mother looped. was ill. Yeah. They looped a bit of his drums, uh, which they did. In the most Heath Robinson way fashionable uh, possible, because that's the only way you could do it in that. Yeah, days. they spliced it out, didn't they, with a with, 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 you know razor but blade it, and, but he also he also got, it back in. you got a really long piece of tape, and then and then you had you had it running on the normal spool over there, and then you had Carl Richardson standing at the other end of the studio, twirling around a pencil or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's right. Because that's, that's the right. only way you could get it to pass the heads. The, at the right, you know, right interval that you needed
2: to play it back. I love, I love seeing that kind of thing. I do. I couldn't agree more. And it's, I thought it was an amazing moment because Dennis Bryan then returns from his mother's funeral or whatever to find that, in a sense, they don't really need it anymore. <laughs> They've invented the drum loop, and this <laughs> works. It's absolutely reliable. It and never all lets all, you down. It never and varies. All, and, and
0: all these things which are now just a, a, a button push away. Yeah. Used to be just really hard to do and it's not that long ago really well, you know. If you're as old as we are it's not that long ago uh, and uh you know that part in, in all this is, is is immense no doubt about but another it.
2: i thought another really good bit was the thing about the kind of militant disco wars because i didn't know that you know this is a uh, the think they, about over, black and they overplayed gay, that. they are they slightly overplayed but i didn't know that there was a law in, in even up to the mid-70s in new york clubs where uh you couldn't dance with a person of the same sex in a place that had a liquor license yeah I always so they they, they obviously adopted the, the, the Bee Gees, you know, songs, you know, jive talking and stuff as a kind of major soundtrack for this kind of, for this movement, you know. And then there was the event. Do you remember the uh, event was called, was it called Disco uh, Demolition Demolition yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Um, in, uh, in Kaminsky Park in Illinois. Disco Demolition Night, where they invited everyone to come along between two matches, like the Chicago White Sox and Detroit, Detroit Tigers. And for 98 cents, you could get in if you bought a disco record with you, and they would blow them all up at, at half-time in the middle of the pitch, you know. <laughs> and I thought, this is just absolutely... Well, because the records they brought along were things like Al Green and Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye. Well, it's not yeah, disco then, records, no, you know? no, no. So it all became a bit you know racist and a bit homophobic, really. But I thought, I don't know, I thought it was... I thought it was a really interesting story. I mean, they're they're great records, and um, I learned quite a lot about it.
0: I liked, I I very much liked the, of course, they got the additional thing of being brothers, which I think Robin says. no, I think Barry says at one point, after we got famous, I ceased to know anything about my brother's personal lives. Yeah, I thought that was because you know, they lived kind of in the back of a van or whatever, a tour bus and uh, uh, when they were on the road and then when that stopped, they all went to their individual kind of Tudor mansions in in varying different countries or suburbs or whatever and all got married and and all just pursued lives that the other ones, the other two knew nothing about at all.
2: I thought that was really interesting.
0: And developed eccentricities and uh, And he says, uh, somebody says, I think Morris says, when you're on your way up, all the energies in the group are pointed inwards to making the group successful. Everybody's thinking about that. As soon as you've got that, all the energy points outwards to what can I do for myself?
2: which I thought was a really good way really, to I thought it. that was a good point too. And I thought it was interesting they talked about the way they composed. And it's very unusual. It's three people writing together. And yeah. That's very unusual. Three people writing together. And I think you Noel know, Gallagher makes the point that, you know, actually brothers singing is like an instrument yeah. in itself, you know. It is, yeah. um, You know, the yeah. Everly Brothers just sounds like one yeah. voice duplicated, it's extraordinary, yeah. you know. Yeah. And I thought that was a really good point, that somehow they'd managed to work out a way of collaborating, the three of them, on these songs where nobody felt that they were getting squeezed out and everybody felt they deserved their <laughs> songwriting royalty. Um, and that kind of closeness, that kind of intuition was really quite effective. And actually, now, Barry well, is quite funny. There's a point where it's Barry's, I think in an interview, someone, someone said, he said, Morris and I are twins. That's basically how we met. <laughs> it's pretty funny. <laughs> so, what did you
0: make of the interview with, and because they, they, they talked to the three, you know, the three musicians, Blue Weaver, Danish Bryan, and uh, oh God, what's the name of the guitar player? I can't remember. Um, uh, who, were, who were also part of their success and were hugely important in in playing on those records and what did you make of blue weaver's interview where he talks about the composing of how deep is your love which was of course an enormous
2: well story. that was a fantastic part because he actually had if i remember right he has a cassette of them he has a cassette and of them, them, writing, it. It. And them writing it trying out he's, chords. he's playing the piano yeah and he clearly thinks he partly wrote it. Well, I think the story there is that he wouldn't have that cassette still hanging around if he didn't use it in a legal battle. <laughs> Don't you think? Don't you think that might have been used? As ever? Can we say? It? It's, I think it it's, would have been used. As ever. It's not for me to
0: say. But at no. the end of the interview, he says, "I still feel it's emotionally part of me, and they hold the shot. Yes, His eyes
2: missed His over, eyes and kind of really
0: hold." Because they're obviously I trying thought, to trying to make the point
2: without. Well, making if the point. you, I actually went and looked at the song to see what the credit was, and the credit is the three members of the Bee Gees and Blue Weaver yeah. brackets uncredited. Yes, so that's what it says. So there must have been something, but I'm fairly sure because I met Blue Weaver once when we were on Old Grey Whistle Test, and I went out with the Damned. To Jutland, as you did, I don't know. You were probably going to the Isle of Man with Nazareth or something. <laughs> but I was. It was my turn to go to, the, to Jutland with the Isle of dam, uh, with, with, to, with the dam. And they Blue Weaver was part of their setup. Then he was helping, working on a record they were making. Maybe he was producing or playing keyboards or something. And and, uh, and I just talked to him a lot and got his story. And, and I got the impression that they were offered a royalty for recording those songs, Night Fever, etc., or points. And he just thought on a whim he'd had yeah, some points and points is him. a ro-
0: points is a royalty.
2: Oh right. What do I mean? Sorry, a session for, a for your p- points. Sorry, a session for your points. And uh, I think he'd had something he'd done quite well for him recently. So he thought he'd just risk it. He thought, well, why not? It's been fun. They're interesting songs, they're different. It might just catch fire, <clears> you know. And so went for points. And anyway, all I know is that when we got back to uh, with the part of West London I live in, I noticed that Blue Weaver lives in a massive pile—a <laughs> really fabulous
0: place. All it right live, out of it. They all live near you, Mark. They, I don't know. They, no, yeah, that's, too late. that's what they all look forward to. You know, one day there'll be a great payday, and we are going to
2: live near no, the same Mark street as Mark Allen. Allen. <laughs> No, it's a very different setup. It's like is.
0: like the story of. Um, the members of Joe Cocker's Grease Band, who were hired in by Tim Rice to do a session for a load of songs that they were doing at Olympic in 1970, 1970, I think. And and they said, what do you want session fee or points? And they said, oh, session fee. (laughs) They just went and drank it, you know. And that was Jesus Christ Superstar.
2: Can you imagine?
1: (laughs) You should celebrate yourself every day. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today.
2: Oh God. You'd be kicking yourself the rest of your life. <laughs> Probably but they are. did all right out of it. And Probably. the other amazing thing is, of course, that him and the drummer were both in Amen Corner. What are the chances of that? You look at a picture of Amen Corner in 1968 or think Two of those guys are going to go. off of they which, which two? Which two will be will be kind of key, prime movers in the in the in the disco revolution. It's astonishing, isn't it?
0: Anyway, how do you mend a broken heart? It's out there on uh, all the usual streaming services. And let's face it, what else have you got to do?
1: The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week.
0: I saw that uh, (laughs) this this is a really insignificant anniversary, Mark, this is. On the 20th of December 1999, the readers of UK Guitar Magazine Voted Nell Gallagher the most overrated guitarist of the millennium. Uh, Jimi Hendrix was voted guitarist of the millennium. And Nirvana's Nevermind was best album. And I just thought, I can remember all those times in my youth where people used to sit around drawing up lists of who was supposed to be the best
2: guitarist. No, exactly the same with me, but actually just to say, <laughs> Noel Gallagher, in his defence... Who was saying that he was rated in the first place? No, Gallagher. I mean, his solo on Live Forever, that he plays note for note exactly the same, he just must have worked out, you know, uh, methodically and memorised. He's just not a natural lead guitar player, you know. And uh, I I can't imagine anyone ever thought he was. But, no, you're right. When I was about, um, I don't know, it must have been like 12 or 13, we would sit around talking about who was the best guitarist (laughs) And uh, and Give the big issue point. was this is so embarrassing. The big issue was, is it you know Jimmy Page or Eric Clapton or whatever Jeff Page, or is it Alvin Lee because he's the fastest? That's the fastest. And the fastest. He's faster. He can play more notes per minute, which is like saying a book's particularly good because it was written really quickly or typed really fast. What, wait, what did Truman Capote say about, no, about Jack actually, Kerouac? Was, yeah, that's not writing. That's typing. I mean, <laughs> it, about, on the road, you know. So I mean, which is ridiculous, but. Actually, uh, you know, th- there are very few guitarists that you ever looked at. in te- Did you, in technical terms? I used to look at Bert Jansch and John Renbourn and folk guitarists like that, and David Graham, and think that's technically incredible. How did they do that? But in terms of electric guitarists, I mean, did you did you sit there and
0: think? Oh, I, I went through. I went through the period of uh, of, of being, being very persuaded by. But I mean the thing about the thing about playing the guitar is it, it was a display as well as an auditory yeah, experience, it was. wasn't it? It was something you looked at. And it was kind of impressive to look at. Whereas playing the piano is not really yeah. just something about the guitar it's because it's mobile and because it's roughly it's about the size of a machine gun, isn't it? That's, yeah, absolutely. I always think that's a huge part yeah, of his appeal. A
2: uh, yeah. It's
0: a it's a prop. Uh, And also, I I fell for that idea that the higher up the fretboard they played, the more intensely they were feeling it, which is (laughs) nonsense. It's just a cliche. It's all in good. Yeah, that's right. uh, But no, I, I, I remember those days sitting there, you know, <laughs> writing down lists, trying to work out who
2: should be third and who should be fourth. It's like a, like it's a Melody Maker poll. I know. It's such a boy thing. It's totally a boy thing. It's a ridiculous idea. Not so much you know, of it is really, about tone, though, don't you think? You well, know, yeah. B.B. King, King, I can't remember a single solo we ever played, but it's about a tone and a series It is, is that note. Uh, yeah. Ernie Isley is just a tone. You know, yes. it's, and Keith Richards and Robbie Robertson. There's not one single guitar solo by either of them that you can sit there and say, "I remember that," or I can, you know, note for note. It's just that it's all about texture, really. It is. It is. And this is
0: why you know, if anybody asks me now, not that anybody does, who's the who's the greatest guitar player of my of your lifetime? I would probably say something like Steve Cropper. Oh, that's good. You, you know, because you just think about how many records Steve Cropper has played yeah. on in all kinds of different styles, and he's. He's pretty much astounding all the way through. He and is astounding. He, uh, you know, and he's its not a soloist or anything like that. It's just what he contributed to the sound of things. Although um, my favourite, my favourite, the, the one guitar player, that, I, if I could choose one guitar player to listen to for, for you know, for the last half hour before I die. I'm going to guess. Richard it's
2: Richard Thompson. No, it's, it's Richard Thompson. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Because he kind of
2: broadcasts on my frequency, you know. He's <laughs> also not quite sure what he's going to play. He's not completely predictable. I tell you what I absolutely love. Actually, <laughs> here we are to debunking the whole <laughs> idea of two <laughs> blokes sitting around saying, "Well, who's the best guitarist?" <laughs> no, we're doing it. We're actually doing it. But what I absolutely love. Well, he's not an electric guitarist, but David Rollins, you know, who plays on the Killian Wilson. The other half. Right, of the yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my god, he's fantastic. That effortless embroidery, just beautiful, soft little phrases. And kind of, you know, doesn't push himself forward. It's just part of the accompaniment. He's absolutely never plays anything. Uh, yeah. That you that Well, so
0: we're talking about Robbie Robertson as as you were. I note that they're reissuing Stage Fright. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The band's third album. Was it the it third album? Yes, it. Is. Yeah. Um, next year on some anniversary, I suppose. Um, and, and they change. Did they change the order? Of- Something? they've changed the order because at the, at the track listing because this is apparently the the order that comes out in february is the order it was all supposed to be because apparently while it was being kind of mixed and uh and presumably sequenced by glenn johns and T- todd Rongren, the band were on um on that do you remember that train journey they took across yeah. uh United States and Canada. Yeah, the tour with right, with, yeah. with uh, who did they go with? They go with the Grateful Dead? The the dead and like. Janis
2: Joplin was that the one? I think it was.
0: I think it was. Yeah, they were they were on a train, uh, and so they were kind of incommunicado for a couple of weeks, and uh, therefore they had no part in the sequencing of it, and that was done by producers and engineers. uh But I still think. It's a, it's a rum idea to me to take, you know, a 50-year-old album and and change the running order. Because the people who are going to go and buy it are the people who've been listening to the old version for 50 years, aren't they? And they're and going they're to be going annoyed. To be more, they're going to think that's sacrosanct.
2: And they'd be right. Yes.
0: Don't you yeah. think? <laughs> well, I think so, yeah. I mean, because because I would have thought, uh, if, if you want to kind of republish what should have been the running order, fine. That's what Spotify's for. That's what streaming services are for. You can you can take those tracks, you can put them in any order you like, and that's fine. You've got the experience. But don't put it on a vinyl record or whatever. No, it's
2: wrong. That there gonna, are a little, uh, um, there a little a internet record. things where you can find, for example, the Beatles' uh, Abbey Road medley, and you can find it in its original version with the bridge for Mean Mr Mustard in there. And her Majesty's in there as it was originally, and then it was clipped out and they stuck in it at the end as a secret track. And um, when you hear that, it just sounds so jarring and so utterly wrong. You know, you're, you're it's, you don't look at it as a curio, an interesting thing. You just feel absolutely horrified by its existence.
0: You've been messing with my memories. You know, I know, I know completely. That's no, what wrong. you feel about it. So since we spoke last time, um, John Le Carre. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. John LeCarry. Yes. I love John LeCarry. God, I. Well, John LeCarry, let's be fair, was 89? Good innings. Yeah, very good. Very innings. good innings. Fantastic career. You know, really successful for, for a long, long period of time and provided me with so much pleasure. Um, And, uh, you know, I, I one of the things that I always love about John LeCarry, and I was watching an old interview with him was was all the all the the language and the terms with which you would refer to the world of, uh, of espionage that that his characters you know lived in uh, and this was you know you and I both both worked uh, one time or another on Shaftesbury avenue so you go through cambridge circus and uh, and the you know, the headquarters of the, the the intelligence services of those days referred to in john le carre books were always the circus and it yeah. was always supposed to be just above a tailor's or something like that. Yeah. So every single time I ever go through Cambridge Circus, I just look around, see if I could see where he might have sighted it. You know, But he used to refer to all the different uh, specialisms of the espionage services by these wonderful names like uh, the scalp hunters. Yeah, scalp hunters. The, the lamplighters, you know, the inquisitors, the janitors. yeah the uh what the, the mothers the mothers who are the kind of middle-aged ladies in the typing pool brilliant band names and uh, absolutely you could make any of them band names and um and I was watching an interview with him and, and uh, you know because he obviously had some background in intelligence uh where he said, you know where do these names come from He said i made them up and and I couldn't think of a comparable case of a, of an author you know, taking a fictional world and just inventing a load of really plausible terms. Completely plausible. Because, because one of the great attractions of John le Carre is that it is particularly attractive to males, I think, is the idea of an inner world. You know, here's a load of professionals talking to each other in their special shorthand. And don't you wish you knew it? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. an immensely attractive idea. And in his case, he just he just invented it, all of it, you know. Pavement artists were the you know the people who followed people on the streets, you know. That's right. Pavement artists, yeah. And uh, they were just beautiful ideas, and he did them with such conviction all the way through his books that I always thought, oh, he just there's obviously those are terms used in MI6. They exist, precisely. but no, he'd sat there at a typewriter. And he'd written them down, you know, for the first time. And uh, what well, absolute... great names
2: for bands, though, mate. Skelton, oh, Huntsman, oh, absolutely. Honey Trap, honey trap, <laughs> the Russia House, the Looking Glass yeah, War. Yeah, you yeah. You listen to them, wouldn't you? Call for the Dead, Secret Pilgrim. The... In Peel voice, Madame Ostra uh, Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Molly Meekin, Otto Leipzig, Tony. To- Toby Estherhouse, you know. Those are- Toby
0: Estherhouse. yeah. Hester-Hars. Show, uh, show, uh, the uh, the people who at Mo 6 who made documents, forged documents, were known as the shoemakers. That's brilliant. <laughs> and I'll tell you, I've just been looking at, again uh, last night, I was looking, at, there's a wonderful biography of John le Carré, if anybody's interested, by, written by a guy called Adam Sisman. And I don't know how much you know about John le Carré, but he, his father was a legendary reprobate con man, you know, living, ducking and diving either side of the law. Yeah. Um, Who caused him great embarrassment throughout his life. And I was just looking at the passage about when Spire came in for the cold, which is his breakthrough book, 1964, same year as the Beatles go to to America, you know. And uh, it was a huge hit out of the box in the united states it, within six weeks of, of being published it was uh it was number one in the new york times bestseller list later in the year it was taken up by the book club of the month uh, it, it was a selection and that meant you sold one million copies incredible one million copies he goes to he goes his first trip to new york He's, he's called off the plane by the stewardess when they arrive before everybody else gets off. Mr. Le Carre, yes, just follow me, goes down the steps and there at the bottom of the steps on the tarmac at JFK is a limousine into which he's ushered and his publisher is in there, straight into the city, straight to the Plaza Hotel, facing a load of journalists he's the biggest story in 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 literary america and then late night he's taken to the stork club or the 21 or one of these very ritzy you know hangouts and there at his table is conducted to is his father smoking a big cigar and a huge great drink Having arrived in New York about two months ahead of him to take advantage of his set, his imminent his son's celebrity, celebrity. Brilliant. And, uh, has been has been you know borrowing houses free for two months on the basis of Which his is son's high son. on the whole. He ha- he has nothing. What's to his do relationship
2: with, with his father? I mean, not not good then. Oh really, From Really? He hadn't seen in him for long. long. So we're virtually in Freddie Lennon territory. Oh, bit it's right.
0: If Freddie Lennon had had kind of the smarts of a of Arthur Daly, you know uh, <laughs> that that would be John lecarry's dad. But honestly, that they, the biography by Adam Sisman, I can't recommend it too highly. It's a it's a really really good book. That sounds
2: fantastic. Uh,
0: Talk, talking of publishing things, I see Julie
2: burchill has been fired by her publisher. I was following being... that, and I thought that was... I, 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 I don't know why I was so entertained by it. It's wrong to be entertained by it. But, you know, Julie Burchill. when you sign Julie Burchill, you you know, you 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 want her to be over the top and go the of extra mile. Is. And she does. I mean, what she was actually doing was writing a book about uh, cancel culture, wasn't it? Yeah. And the great <laughs> irony is, of course, she's now been cancelled <laughs> by, by her own publisher for an extremely one, uh, unwise tweet. Um, which had a kind of um, you know a kind of anti 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 muslim kind of sentiment to it didn't it so uh <laughs> complicated but what do you you know why do you sign julie Birchell if it's not to go
0: too far what's the yeah. point if julie Birchell turns up at your office and say i've seen the error of my ways and in future i'm going to be i'm going to moderate my language <laughs> you'd think yeah. Well, we don't want you.
2: We want somebody
0: we want, else. We know.
2: want. We want Julie Birchall. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I know. Talking
0: of Islam, I was reading this morning uh, that um, some some guy had been tweeting about he he'd, he'd um, Islam a uh, Muslim background, and he said my family had never celebrated Christmas. Uh, you know, so it was always a bit odd to me. But obviously, this year because we're forcibly separated. I've decided I'm going to pursue Christmas. And so he had a really good series of tweets, this guy, about suddenly discovering Christmas. You know, he's done a whole two weeks about how it feels to be on the inside of Christmas for the first for the time. For
2: never understood it. Isn't <laughs> never, that amazing? Never really,
0: never really understood it. I thought it was quite a sweet idea. I thought it was a classic case of, you know,
2: what we're all going to have to do, which is make the best of it. Make the best of it. My God, it could be a little... It, it's going to be going to be a bit quiet, isn't it? There's no doubt about that. And uh, the turkey will last a while. The turkey will be taking turkey sandwiches to
0: to the beach in summer, I think. <laughs> you know.
1: This is a junction in the Word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit.
0: Oh, it's any other business. We're joined by Alex Gold. Hello, Alex. Hi there. We were talking, um, I think, last week about um, whether artists could stop other artists recording their songs, and uh, you'd had a little bit of experience of this, hadn't you, with with clearing tunes?
3: Yeah, one of my my CD double lives is um, <laughs> is is an is is, is thing. So um, yeah, and uh, what I from what I understand. Um, you you you're perfectly free to record and release a cover song um and when you register it part of them so part of the metadata the metadata is all the track info so you're talking writer publisher yeah, that yeah, yeah. you have to import into the system um when you release it um that gets traced and funneled through so all sales a percentage of that goes through to the publisher and it will get sorted out automatically by the collecting societies basically but uh you're, you're free to record your own version but you're not free to release anybody else's version
2: now I'm that, ne- that I- artist can't can't stop you recording well it. that I, well that's what interests that, me because prince did it,
0: didn't it, it, he it, well he, tr- it, he i think he tried to um, yeah and um because he he, also, he resented it. It's interesting, you should say this, because I've been reading a book all about this this week.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> this, is,
0: uh, uh, this is Adventures of a Jazz Age Lawyer, and it's about a guy called Nathan Birkin. And he was the guy who invented the collection agencies and all that back in the you know pre-First World War in the United States. And he was the person who established the kind of copyright we have nowadays. And he was the guy who established ASCAP, which is the great American collection agency on behalf of, of all the artists. And his theory was that the future of the music business is a river of dimes. It's all about tiny sums of money that just keep flowing forevermore. And so you, entering, same Spotify, your, isn't entering your metadata, you are playing your little part in the in the maintenance of that massive river of dimes. And this is an absolutely fascinating book because it, if ever people think, you know, they tear their hair about what's happening in the music business nowadays, and the old models busted and the new one hasn't hasn't come along. You realize when you look back, you know, a hundred years or whatever, it's been changing absolutely all the time. And he came along at a time when the biggest music reproduction um, machinery, the most important thing was the player piano. You know, it was the, the piano. Oh, you, you had a, the, the sheet the of paper with the holes
2: in it that went across the... That's right. It's a pianola, basically. It,
0: yeah, it's a pianola. So a piano that played itself, effectively. And um, and recording wasn't considered a big thing. Radio wasn't even heard of at all. And so... And so Publishers would pay um, performers to play songs in front of the public because then the public would want to hear them on the piano roll or would go and buy the sheet music. So it worked in a totally different way. You know what I mean? They paid to get this stuff performed. And what he changed was he said, no, in future, you're going to pay in order to perform things. You know, you're going to have to pay... The collection agencies. And it took years and years to build up, but he eventually did it. And it's absolutely extraordinary. And his view was that the big money was going to be made out of cinemas because cinemas in those days, silent movies, the top cinemas had orchestras, and the orchestras played all the way through the film. And so if you could get from those places a dime out of for every tune and there were millions of these places up and down the United States, you could build an enormous great revenue stream, which he did. And so, and this, you know, the the whole thing, the the music business machine has reinvented itself at 20, 30 year intervals throughout the last 100 years, and will no doubt continue doing it in the next
2: 100 years, you know. I love all that. Do you remember when we interviewed Simon Napier-Bell? Yeah, yeah. Simon Napier-Bell uh, Magic. You, you'll probably remember this. It was a word in your ear event. He'd written a book about the, the, the history of the music industry, yeah. and there was a bit where he talked about uh, uh, the first musicals, and this would have been in either this late nineteenth century or whatever. And uh, and they used to pay people to learn the songs in the musicals, to sit in the audience and join in with the songs, and then afterwards, as they were leaving, sing the songs to give the impression that they were so catchy, yeah. they were such instant hits that uh, that you know there might be a market in selling the sheet music. Uh, and uh, they were actually paid to do that. Brilliant idea. He makes an interesting point of this,
0: which I never realized. It wasn't until the advent of radio that songwriting started to get quite sophisticated. Because if you wanted to hit big hit song in the 1910s or, you know, the uh, First World War, or whatever, you had to make it simple enough that anybody could play it. Yeah. You know because yeah you know, the challenge was could you sit down at could the you piano and- a piano at home on your piano because every home started to Absolutely. have telephony yeah and uh, and once in the 20s and 30s that was less of a consideration because you were trying to interest people in the records and so and the songwriting became more sophisticated the performance became more sophisticated yeah it changed the music it's always the same technology changes the music it's not the other way around. It's technology yeah, it's changes the music, yeah, and yeah. Uh, it's a fascinating story. Absolutely fascinating story. Now, now
3: songwriting's changed to to um, to a formula where the, the objective is to a grab the listener as quickly as possible and retain their attention for as long as possible. So, if if you listen to a lot of modern pop songs, um, you know your Billie Eilish's and your Taylor Swift's, you'll hear. Lots of sections that probably could be choruses, one after the other. You know, it's just hook after hook after hook after what hook. That's it. And it's just different hooks bolted together. It's really clever. You know, you get the you probably get the purist going. That's not a proper songwriting, but actually, it's 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 become a science. And it's
0: well, it's, it is well. The classic. If you want to know about this, the uh, terrific book by John Seabrook, is not it, Mark? Yes. Yeah. The, uh, the Song Machine. Fantastic. Uh, we both Yeah, uh, uh, it. It's uh, God, it's a good book. And it, he, John Seabrook, New Yorker writer, who became fascinated by the music that his kids listened to in the back of the car. And it was kind of Britney Spears and the Bank Street Boys. And he just and it was so alien to him, he became fascinated. And he wrote a whole book about where it comes from, that music. And there was
2: hit yeah, sections. There was the was the, the top liners, were they called the people who wrote they, the track and the people hook. Track back and hook.
0: hook is the uh, is the method, you know. And uh, going back to... And track you, and
3: hook, yeah. back and trace. <laughs> <Track> yes.
0: Of, <laughs> it's funny when uh, going back to the Bee Gees film, there is a point in there, I think it's with Night Fever, isn't it, where he says, that was the first case. Albie Luton says, so we start <laughs> with the rhythm track and we just built on top of it. Well, that's now... How all records are made, is not it? You know, completely. But it,
2: it was it was revolution. That was yeah, in, in
0: 1976 or whatever it is. That they... There's
2: another brilliant moment in the Bee Gees where they where they talk about. I think Arif Marden is producing them, and yeah. and uh, one of them, Barry, I think, just suddenly does this falsetto, mm. and he says, "Hold, hold that! Now that's yeah. interesting." That's a new sound. It's a bit like the moment, the changing point in Neil Young's life when he yeah. invented that high-pitched way of singing, which he didn't originally do. He said that became the trademark. Yeah. I love those moments when the whole thing changes. Just
3: it's a bit similar with Oasis, actually, like when uh, Liam was singing "Cigarettes and Alcohol" at a gig, and he he went for the first oh, time, yeah. and Alan McGee went, "Do that again, do that again," and that became yeah. you, know, you know his, his trademark. Absolutely, <laughs>
0: that's a good program. Do that again. Be a good radio program. Wouldn't it? Do that again.
3: <laughs> and the little there's little
0: moments in loads of music where people go, no, no, do that again. No mistake. Do it again. It's really interesting. Make so, a career out of it. What else is happening, Alex? Have we got any new patrons or anything to talk about?
3: Any patrons, indeed, absolutely. Uh welcome to you all. There is Hugo. All right. Mysterious Hugo.
0: Okay.
2: The, uh, okay.
3: Mr. R. Dwensing.
2: A very formal. Equally mysterious. A John the Carey character. Yes. absolutely.
3: <laughs> uh, and uh, the more conventionally named Mike Smith.
2: Um, <laughs> I think we remember that,
3: yeah. can't we? <laughs> along with Richard Goodwin, and they are all annual patrons. Of course, you get 15% discount if you subscribe annually. Um, and we also and have... a special have birthday celebration. Indeed. Um, Steve Edwards, Mitchell Edmund, and Jonathan Jacobson. So welcome well, to... Well, welcome to them all,
2: brilliant. and they'll all... appreciate lor- appreciated.
0: They'll all be beneficiaries of the special Patreon-only Word-in-Your-Ear Annual, which we are doing later this week. Is that right, Alex?
3: Absolutely. There there, there is nothing right, in fact. So
0: we intend to be, you know, like the Windmill Theatre during the Second World War. We never close.
2: (laughs) So, you know... Even on Christmas Day, we'll be there. Glass of green ginger wine. (laughs) Paper hat at jaunty tilt. (laughs) Well, you know. Talking about the original lineup of Wishbone Ash.
0: Yes. (laughs) Because as our motto has it, you know, let's face it, there's nothing else to do.
1: This podcast was brought to you by the Word. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.